0: Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun as we talk about drones, robotics, and diabetes technology. I can't wait. Our guest today is Professor Derek O'Keefe of the National University of Ireland, Galway. He'll be speaking on November 9th at a virtual half-day event by the Endocrine Society entitled Insulin 2121, The Next 100 Years of Discoveries. You can register for this free event by going to endocrine.org slash insulin100. That's endocrine.org slash insulin100. Before we get to it, let me first say that this episode is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Lilly USA LLC. Thanks so much. Now, on with the show. Professor O'Keefe, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for asking me to speak today. Oh, we're so happy to have you here. We're celebrating hundred years of insulin and what a wonderful hundred years it's been. We've really come a long way, but when you look to the future, what are the questions that we still need to ask and the problems we still need to solve when it comes to insulin therapy?
1: I'm a, a clinical doctor. I see patients, but I also trained as an engineer. And essentially, when the body isn't producing insulin, as what happens in type 1 and type 2 diabetes, ultimately, that's a problem for people to live a, you know, a normal, healthy life. So what we ultimately want is for people to make their own insulin. The challenge we have at the moment, obviously, even though it's remarkable that we're celebrating the 100-year anniversary of Banting and Best discovery of uh, exogenous insulin so that we can help keep people alive and healthy with insulin from outside the body. Ultimately, where the finish line here is to get people with diabetes to make their own insulin again. And that's going to be done with our colleagues in science and stem cells. That's really their wheelhouse to try and make the body make insulin again without all the autoimmunity component or indeed the insulin resistance for type 2s. So that's what the finish line is. And I guess what we have to do before we get to that finish line is to come up with novel ways of delivering insulin to somebody who needs it exogenously, be that insulin pens and vials, be it uh, insulin pumps, and then making sure that when that insulin needs to be delivered to people, that it's equitable, that they can get it, um, you know, no matter where they live in the world, for example, geographically. And then as well as just the insulin, all the education that goes with it and all the MDT that's needed to manage the complications. But I guess a good way of thinking about it is, you know, when man first took his steps from his cave in Stone Age times, I'm sure he looked up at the sky and said, you know, I'd love to just fly to where I'm going to over by the forest. But he realized he had to walk over there. And, you know, as humanity has progressed, we've come up with new ways of transportation. So we said, use the horse or we'd use a carriage or, you know, about a 100 years ago, we said we developed the car Uh, and now we have the electric car coming out and You know, we have airplanes and so on. But ultimately, we're going to have personalized flying vehicles or, you know, flying cars. But when we get to that point that we're able to just fly from point A to B, we'll look back over a history of lots of innovation along the way to get to that point. And I guess that's what's important. We didn't just realize that patients can't produce uh, insulin and let's just wait 300 years to figure out how to do it with stem cells. Let's innovate along the way and develop solutions that are appropriate for now with the technology that we have to deliver the insulin with the ultimate goal of having people making their own insulin again with the use of things like stem cells uh, as the end goal.
0: I think it's fascinating that you had this engineering background as well. And you talked about when man first came out of the caves and they wished they could fly to the forest. One thing they probably weren't thinking about, was drones. <laughs> you know, but you're involved in drones. You've been at the forefront of using drones specifically for insulin delivery. So I need to ask why drones. So I guess it's a practical clinical thing that happened uh, in my practice whereby
1: in 2019 there was a big storm in Ireland, a snowstorm. Uh, nothing like the snowstorms of North America necessarily, but nevertheless it was big enough for the Irish environment that stopped everything for about a week. You know, we had enough snow that's kept people homebound in their farms and all around the countryside, they couldn't get out. The roads were closed. And for most people, that's a snow week, you know, and they stay at home. But if you have a condition such as diabetes, you know, you have clinics to go to and so on. So patients were ringing me saying, you know, doc, I can't come to your clinic next week because I can't get out of my farm, which is two hours from the hospital. And I said, yeah, no problem. We'll just rebook you for when the snow passes. And then they said, and also doc, I need insulin because I have type one diabetes and I'm running low on insulin, what will I do? And that made me pause and think, what do people do if they need a life-saving medicine such as insulin or indeed steroids for Addison's? What do they do if they can't get their medicine? I mean, how do you deliver medicine to patients remotely in an emergency? Uh, do you fly helicopters all around the place? That's not really feasible. Uh, and then I went looking into, well, what do humans do? What do they do for Hurricane Katrina when there was a massive um, you know, natural disaster? How did patients get their insulin at the time or their steroids or their anti-epileptic medications and so on? And what I realized that unfortunately what happens in times of natural disasters is that people die because they can't access life-saving medication. Uh, and then I thought about that as an engineer or a physician, here, physician engineer. I thought about that and I said, there must be a way to deliver stuff. You can go to a toy store and buy a drone, fly something across a room or a garden. And then when I read into it more, I realized that the prosumer, professional consumer drones could only really fly about... 10 kilometers and the rules in airspace as it were are very strict for good reasons because of all the planes flying around you don't want any accidents and the rules forbid you to fly what's called beyond line of sight if you're flying a drone even a kilometer or two you have to see it at all times and obviously then if you're trying to deliver insulin or some other medication to a farm two hours away that's like 30 40 50 kilometers away so that's way beyond your line of sight so i start to look into the aviation rules about drones I found some drones that could fly up to 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers. We all know that the big military units of the world fly drones in war. Mm -hmm. So there was the technological capability to fly drones. So I first of all figured out, was there a drone that could fly far enough in civilian airspace? Then I looked at the rules of civilian airspace. Then I looked around the science and the rules about uh, medication delivery, about the cold chain system, as it's called, to make sure that the medication doesn't change its properties when it's transported. And then, of course, the legal issues around dispensing medicines. You can't have drones dropping medicines on someone's front door and a child picks up the prescription medicines and takes it by accident. So how do you make sure that doesn't happen? So we looked at this big problem that hadn't been solved in the civilian world. And we figured out all the solutions by getting all the stakeholders together from aviation and pharmacy and medicine and technological drone companies. And we did the world's first delivery of insulin in 2019 to the Aran Islands off the coast of Ireland, about 25 kilometers away beyond the line of sight. So the drone took off, flew over the horizon, landed on the island, delivered the incident, and then also brought a blood sample back from the island. So it was a two-way process. And it was remarkable because it was the first time that we used AI to fly drones beyond the horizon with the full endorsement, I should say, of the aviation authorities in Europe, or the first world, basically. So there was planes flying around, there was helicopters flying around, and then our drone was also operating in the same active airspace. Uh, And then, you know, because of that, then I guess people are starting to operationalize drone flying. And we're seeing the emergence now in Europe of some companies such as MANA drones, for example, who are now delivering coffee and pizza to consumers in Ireland uh, initially and then ultimately in the UK and beyond. But, you know, it's becoming more mainstream now. And it wasn't that long ago that would seem like science fiction. But because of our project and other projects around the world using drones such as Zipline in Africa, it's seen as more feasible that you could operate drones successfully to deliver, in this case, medications to patients. So it's about seeing your day job with fresh eyes. You know, what we did at the time when people couldn't get their insulin was to say, let's look at the weather forecast. Hopefully the weather will improve in the week. The snow will go away and you'll be okay. And thankfully that's what happened. But I guess if it happens again now, we have a playbook, how to roll out a drone solution to deliver life-saving medicines. And of course, we've published that data in the the literature, so people have that playbook too. Uh, And and again, like everything in life, we've shown it can be done, which means somebody else can do it as well.
0: Nobody wants another disaster to come, but I think we all agree that there'll be more in the future, and this kind of technology is going to be needed. And we talked about taking it from where we are now to making it more mainstream. When you think about making that jump to having it be more mainstream, are there any challenges that you've identified that? might be what makes it hard to get it to a spot where we can just use this whenever we want and just have all the nations who need it using it. Like, what are the challenges that are out there and what do you think the right approaches might be to meet those?
1: What we did was kind of um, a proof of concept flight to show that we could do it, The technology existed, you get the right people involved to get the legal stuff sorted and the regulations. There's practical challenges in operationalizing drone flying for medications or for just daily use. The first thing you think that's practical is you need a drone that's safe. And most drones that you find, you know, that you buy in shops, toy shops or online, they're really just recreational drones for flying around a park or taking some pictures from aerial photography. They don't really, and again, it's because the industry is learning, they don't have the same airworthiness certificates as airplanes would. So before any airplane takes off, you'll be familiar with different types like Boeing 747s or Airbuses and so on. They all have to be rigorously tested to make sure they're safe before they're given an air license. And then once they're given an air license, they have to be monitored regularly to make sure that all the parts are working properly. And that kind of uh, regulation and rigor is only just coming into the air drone industry now. Mandated by the national and international um, uh, aviation industries like the FAA in the States and the EAA in Europe. So that's the first thing is that commercial drones will have to be made, not consumer ones, but commercial ones that have the right flight safety record that have redundancy. So if one of the rotors fail, you know, that a parachute pops, for example, by jet propulsion, for example, that allows it even at a low altitude to deploy a parachute. Um, Because none of these things are safe until you're kind of happy that the drone is flying over your own kids' heads and won't crash if you know what i mean so because these are going to be flying over schools and flying over uh, motorways and so on once we have more than one drone flying in the air as well it's going to be the whole thing about the air traffic control of drones and that's a brand new area that hasn't even been thought about yet or only has been thought about in the last year or two someone has to write the software to do that they have to come up with the regulations how many drones can fly per square foot of uh, airspace what about the communication links so you, for our mission to go beyond the line of sight we actually did have to have a pilot for the drone even though the pilot didn't fly the drone he was on standby and also we had to have real-time video feedback from the drone so that you know if for example anything happened on the route that we didn't expect like a ship suddenly sailed in front of the drone that was you know uh, an aircraft carrier that was like 12 stories high or something that the pilot could see that and make changes if they needed to so you're going to come up with scenarios kind of like what they have in the military of kind of Multi screen first person view video, as well as multi screen digital breadcrumbs to show where the drones are flying. And just like air traffic control, having someone manage that airspace. So the drones would have to have their unique IDs. All this stuff has just been figured out in the last two or three years I and mean, in the next decade. But for sure, our children, as easy as it is now for us to order a book online and get it delivered in a day or two, that's going to be their world, except the delivery will be by drone often. And people say to me, oh, will it get rid of cars and trucks and so on the answer is no it'll probably do five or ten percent of deliveries the last mile they call it you know from the local shop to your house uh, that's where it's going really going to be of benefit and drones are kind of uniquely suited to deliver medicine because you know the drones are only ever going to be uh the size of the drone that we use is the size of a coffee table for example mm. it can carry maybe six or eight kilograms so they're never going to be as big as a truck so the payload they're going to carry will be limited Therefore, the things that are useful for drones to carry are things like medications because medications are typically low weight, high value. And therefore, for um, you know a limited payload space, you can actually transport quite valuable cargo. And it's also things that are useful in people's lives. People pay for services that are useful. So you will pay the extra couple of dollars for a service that delivers a book to you in two days, not six days. Uh, and it'll be the same with the drones. And then certainly the, the experience in Ireland has been that people will pay an extra dollar or two to get their coffee in three minutes to their house delivered by drone, uh, as opposed to having to, you know, drive to the store or order a takeaway coffee to be delivered by car or by bike. And I guess that's the last part of the picture is the environmental thing, whereby the drones that we use and the ones that are being used operationally now around the world. And again, it's not just small companies, it's big companies like Google have a, have a drone wing, Amazon are looking at drones, um, and then smaller companies, as I mentioned, like Mana they're all using electric drones. And as the world, I mean, there's a a massive conference, as you know, going on at the moment about the earth and climate and sustainability. As the world realizes it has to move away from the older ICE internal combustion engines to a more green electric powered vehicles, drones will also have a mandate then to be used. So we're going to see a lot more of them over the next decade. It's really interesting because I often meet people who say, oh, you know, if I was there in 2000, I totally would have thought about An online bookstore or a social media website or you know a video sharing website but i guess i'm saying to our listeners that we're at the beginning of a new dawn with deliveries and there's so many angles to get involved with be it the air traffic control or making drones yourself or coming up with ways to integrate it into existing platforms it's a new frontier of innovation that's possible and especially as endocrinologists or as clinicians we'll see use cases for this technology that other people won't because we're in this field.
0: Oh yeah, it's wonderful. You know, here in the States, we have our hurricane season. And when it comes by, you mentioned Katrina earlier, whole cities can have their power grid go out. There could be really dramatic flooding and getting access to life-saving medication can be a real challenge. And it's just so great to hear about this sort of advancement, which could be such a help to so many. We're talking about the future here. We're talking about drones, but it wouldn't be a true conversation about the future if we didn't also talk about robots. And you're doing some work in robotics to help patients with diabetes and their healthcare providers. So, what are the robots doing and why?
1: We're doing a great job in medicine. You know, everyone's living longer, which is fantastic because of the interventions we make in people's lives be that coronary artery stenting or chemotherapy or, you know, hip replacements or, even you know in diabetes with giving people insulin and different medical therapies. So patients are living longer, which is fantastic. But one of the challenges is, is that the healthcare systems of the world are really struggling to keep up with this explosion of people living beyond 60, beyond 70 around the world, because there's far more people now using our health services, and therefore we don't have an infinite amount of clinicians. So, for example, in my own area in Ireland, coming to my clinic, I might see 50 patients on a Tuesday morning for a diabetes clinic with my team. And, you know, many of those patients are waiting for an hour or two in the waiting room before they come and see me. And we have a discussion about their blood sugar control and about how we can improve it and different questions to be answered that they might have. And I thought that, you know, it would be great if we could, you know, get a doctor or a nurse or somebody to take those patients into a room and use the opportunity to educate them about different aspects of diabetes management, because it's quite complex, as you might know. And to make that waiting room more of an active waiting room than a passive waiting room. And the challenge, of course, is is that I'd love to have a nurse or a doctor to go and do that, but we don't because we barely have enough to do the regular clinics. So it got me thinking about, was there different ways to deliver you know, education to patients? And we can leave leaflets in the room and we can leave videos on the television screens, obviously, but they're all quite passive ways of delivering information. So I had this idea that maybe we could use a robot and when i say a robot i mean like humanoid robots so something that's physically in front of you it's kind of like five or six feet tall because my thesis is that you'll have more of an interaction with it you're probably familiar of shopping centers or malls or even hospitals that have a, a speaker system that says please don't smoke on the front of the building and famously underneath that voice there's people smoking because people don't really respect it because it's just some voice you know mm-hmm. on some mechanical system but it might be a different interaction if an actual five foot robot came up to you and said, please stop smoking. And I wanted to explore that, you know, uh, to think about that, because that's an interesting concept. You know, would we accept robots to teach us information? Uh, And then how do robots teach humans information? Humans know how to teach other humans. There's a whole area of academia called pedagogy. We know pretty well how to teach a six year old child to read or do arithmetic. We figured out how to teach high school students the best way to teach them science. We figured out how to teach college students about medicine or engineering. You know, we have the right methodologies. As a species, as a human species, we figured out how to teach other species how to do something or how to give them knowledge or education. Like I can teach my dog how to do a trick, or we can teach a dolphin, you know, how to jump, or we figured that up pedagogy out, but it's fascinating to think how would we respond as humans or as patients to a robot and an inanimate object giving me education. You know, Would I be trustful of it or not trustful? Would I not tolerate it because I don't see it as a thing of value giving me information? So I wanted to explore that concept uh, in my clinic. So we got a robot. It's it's a humanoid robot called uh, Pepper. You buy the robot and then what you have to do is it's like a blank canvas. So you're kind of like Michelangelo. You can just paint what you want. So with programming, then you basically program the robot to do what you want. So the first thing I wanted this robot to do uh, was I wanted to tell this robot to remind people to wash their hands when they come into my clinic. And because of COVID-19, obviously, I, we were doing audits and we saw that about 50% of people, you know, wash their hands when they come into a clinic because they're human and they're busy and they run past the hand sanitizer, or maybe they've sanitized in the car and they think that it's still okay by the time they come into the clinic. So, you know, one way of doing it is to put a security guard on the door all day, but that's not a very efficient use of somebody's time. So we we put the robot at the door and we programmed the robot to recognize a human face and then say, will you please wash your hands? Um, and to engage with the, with the person and offer them uh, the option to look at tutorials about how to correctly wash their hands and so on. And it was a great success. We, we realized that the compliance for hand washing when we audited it, it went up by 20%, which is remarkable considering we didn't put a human at the door, we put a robot. And then we took that idea and we said, okay, well, it looks like humans will engage with the robot and take healthcare information like to wash your hands. So let's see, will humans interact with the robot to learn diabetes education? So, again, we went back and we reprogrammed the whole robot again. And we call the robot project Dave, which is the diabetes audiovisual educator. And Dave has his own clinic room. And we say to the patients in the waiting room, we'd like to teach you about something with diabetes, so like hypoglycemia management or uh, with diet education, or we'd like to teach you about what the HbA1c means and then why Mm -hmm. that's of value to you. And we did a really interesting experiment. We said, we can have. A doctor teach you about it for 15 minutes we can have a nurse teach you about it for 15 minutes or we can have dave this robot we have teach you about it um and then we can put people into one of the three groups and we can find out you know if there's an improvement with the education afterwards and we do that by doing a pre-questionnaire and a post questionnaire so for example a patient might answer 10 questions on a survey about hypoglycemia management uh, and what we found is, you know, the average patient gets three or four out of 10 correct because they may not have been at clinic in nine months or even longer. Now with COVID, it might have been 12 months or longer. And then they meet Dave and they get exposed to the Dave interaction of the robot. And the robot greets them and talks to them about hypoglycemia management and shows them a few short video clips and asks them questions and gets the right answer. And, you know, builds up a report with the patient for 15 minutes. And then afterwards, when we give the same survey again, after delivering the information via the robot, people were getting, you know, eight out of 10 right. So that showed us straight away that objectively, there was a real improvement in knowledge delivered by this inanimate object or robot that was interactive and engaging for patients. And then we also separately asked patients, okay, we see that the knowledge improved, which is great, but how did you feel about interacting with the robot from a psychological perspective? You know, as a human, did you trust it? Did you think it was useful? Uh, And it was overwhelmingly positive people really thought it was useful. Uh, and I guess the first thing to say about this digital health intervention is that obviously it's not going to be for everybody. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect solution. But what we found very clearly, and we have early evidence of it now, which we're going to publish and then go on and study further, is um, there is definitely a, a need for this kind of tool in our clinics. And as I said, if I have 50 patients in the waiting room waiting for me, even if 10 people take the opportunity to use the robot to learn something for that one hour they're waiting, that's a massive clinical impact because now those patients are more educated about their chronic condition and therefore they'll be more engaged in the active management of it. So what we've seen is this opportunity to use technology in the clinic for the benefit of everyone, you know, for the patients to get better acquainted and also for the clinicians. So for example, a nurse that I might have asked to run the education session or a diabetes educator or a doctor to run that Three hour morning session for diabetes education that frees up that clinician to actually take part in what we call higher up their license. They can actually be a main part of the clinic making meaningful decisions about medication adjustments as opposed to delivering diabetes education or basic diabetes management. So it's really given us a glimpse of what we could use robots for in the future. And again, this technology is only out there for the last year or two. So again, we're at the beginning, like the drones of a new frontier of innovation. What we want people to do is to think innovatively about their day job and how they could use technology then to make it better.
0: These robots sound like what I call a a win-win situation where it's good for the patients, it's good for the healthcare providers. But like you said, it's also really early. I heard a quote from you recently, you were in an article talking about these robots and you had said that their robots are currently only operating around 10 to 15% of their overall capability, which raised my eyebrows to be like, what, what more could they be doing? And what are you hoping that they might be doing? What are you looking at?
1: Yeah, so that's true. So, for example, with Dave, this humanoid robot, I mean, Dave has a, an amazing what we call Java engine. It's the programming language where he can simulate emotion and all of the kinds of human nuance. So, for example, when you ask Dave in the hospital, or sorry, when Dave asks you, would you like to wash your hands? And if you say, no, I don't, Dave actually has the uh, emotional capability to mimic kind of a sad response Mm -hmm. to that answer. Say, okay, you don't want to wash your hands, have a nice day, but in kind of a sad demeanor, physically and uh, acoustically. Um, So yeah, and again, with this particular robot architecture, it has full navigation capabilities. So for example, at the moment, it's in a clinic, it's in a room, and it's just staying there in a single spot. But for example, we could deploy Dave around the hospital to the different wards so Dave could be then opportunistic in its teaching and that it could go into a ward up to a patient and say, would you like to learn about these conditions or ask the patient, what condition are you in hospital with? And if they say, I'm in here because of heart failure, then it knows to access its heart failure library and say, would you like to learn something more about your heart failure condition? Literally, the sky is the limit with robot, what you can do. But it depends on their capabilities. And obviously, with capability comes cost. So we're using Dave, as I said, as kind of a paint box to explore different drawings that we want to do and figure out, do we like the the results of those drawings when we do them? And then if we do then, you may not need the full AI capabilities if you're just using it as a a tool in the clinic, you know, to deliver education. But if you're mobilizing around the hospital, then yes, for sure, you're going to need all the navigation and obstacle avoidance uh, architecture. And I guess it's going to become more common and it is becoming more common. Like if you go into a bank in Japan now, for example, in Tokyo, many banks have robots meeting you at the front desk uh hotels in in, in the in the far east similarly have robots at the front desk you know checking you in or checking you out so we're going to see more of them in our ecosystem in the next decade and i guess this is just the beginning of that gold rush so again for us to be active in it uh, we should be at the table as clinicians a lot of clinicians out there might feel it's beyond their wheelhouse because they're just clinicians and they follow protocols and they treat patients per protocol but i guess The life that's all around you, the the way you practice, the way that you interact with patients, that's up for innovation. And, And I guess that's what people should be doing. They should be thinking about, how could I make this better? How could I see more patients than what I'm doing now by employing technology? And I guess if people think that way, then they'll innovate in their job and probably in their lives as well.
0: And innovations are always exciting, but the transition from what was normal to what is new is sometimes difficult there's biases there's barriers and i was wondering what you see as some of the biases and barriers that exist particularly around insulin technology and some of the advancements that we're seeing there
1: always in life there's people who are you know open for change up for change you know have that kind of a mindset one of the big problems in all aspects of life is just inertia people don't want to change what they do because they're creatures of habit and it's worked you know for x number of years why would we change it And it's hard to sell that sometimes, and for good reason, because sometimes what you're trying to sell doesn't work, or there's unforeseen consequences of what you're saying. But even in medicine, it's quite uh, recognized that there is a thing called clinical inertia, whereby physicians and clinicians are quite slow to change things because they're afraid of an unintended consequence, or they just don't know enough about the new thing to change. And certainly in medicine, the central tenant is premium non-nonceriae, which is firstly do no harm. And it's one of the reasons that medicine is so well regulated because we don't want to make a change too quickly that would have an unforeseen consequence in three years' time that we didn't think about. So, bringing technology into medicine has been slow and for good reason, as I mentioned, with regulations. uh, But that doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. And I said, the more literate clinicians are in technology, the more they should be able to identify opportunities. I mean, the kind of things that I see myself in my daily practice when I've worked in a few institutions around the world is that. You know, when we first started talking about CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, or insulin pumps, there was a whole cohort of clinicians who just said, oh, I never learned that in medical school, or I don't know how to use that. It's beyond me. You know, I'll just Mm -hmm. stick with the, the insulin pens that I learned about 20 years ago. And it's only when you kind of engage with them, and hopefully they're active in their professional competency development, that they realize that, you know, an insulin pump is essentially just another way of delivering insulin. It's nothing more complicated than that. And the parameters that you program into it are the exact same parameters that you talk about with a pen and paper, with an insulin pen with the patient when you're talking about insulin carb ratio and, you know, the sensitivity factors. That's the kind of stuff you discuss anyway. The only difference now is you're actually programming it into a device. And once you kind of get rid of the monsters under the bed and explain it that way to clinicians, you find that a lot of maybe of the more older clinicians who are afraid of the technology, they actually really adopt it and they're brilliant. So I think that's always going to be a natural problem when you come in with new devices. It's almost impossible to keep up to date with all the new glucometers and all the new pumps. It's overwhelming. It's almost a full-time job. Mm -hmm. But certainly by staying engaged with professional societies like the Endocrine Society, going to the conferences, keeping up to date with the literature from those main agencies, that's a really good way of starting to make sure that you're up to date with what's going on. And what we're living in now is a world whereby it's patient-centered, which is the way it always was supposed to be in medicine. But unfortunately, traditionally, medicine was very patriarchal. It was kind of doctor driven. And, you know, that was the way that patients had to interact. They went into a clinician and they were told X, Y, and Z and they just accepted it. But now, thankfully, since the advent of the internet and the connected world that we live in, since the smartphone in 2007, we live in a world where patients come into us and say, Hey, doc, I read about this new insulin pump. Can I get it? Or how does it work? Or would it be better than the pump them on at the moment or the glucometer that I use put that interface into it and as healthcare professionals we're kind of ethically mandated to know about this and advise our patients and that's why the practice of medicine will change going forward and it has changed thankfully our at least starting to be more about an interpreter for our patient almost like a collaborator with our patient as opposed to the traditional dictating model of before where we just told patients what to do now it's far more collaborative uh, with patients this shared decision-making that we have with our patients when they come in with knowledge that we do or don't know and we discuss the benefits of that. I think that's really important, you know, as a clinician or even as a human to kind of acknowledge what you don't know. So when a patient comes in and says, can you tell me about this new glucometer that's coming out of Israel? And it's okay to say, actually, I haven't read about that yet. You know, I didn't know about that. Let me read about it and get back to you. Or maybe you could just share with me the PDF and we'll discuss it or that kind of thing. To be comfortable in what you don't know as opposed to just, you know, shutting the clamshell and saying, oh, we don't use that here. And look, we have to use what we use here or nothing. You know, patients want to be engaged with and they want to be listened to. And I think I said in modern medicine, that's the mandate now. So, and what you'll find is most clinicians you know, become medics and nurses and, and uh, all types of HSCPs because they want to help patients. So most people are up to retraining and rethinking the way they practice medicine
0: there's a lot of importance about looking to the future, actively looking for and understanding what's shaping, what's coming. And on November 9th, you'll be joining a host of other presenters to speak at an Endocrine Society half-day event, which is entitled Insulin 2121. It's the next 100 years of discoveries. Can you tell us a little bit about this event and what you're most excited to discuss or hear about?
1: Yes, this is a great event by the Endocrine Society, a really inspiring collection of speakers who are going to talk about all the different aspects of Diabetes care essentially, as we said it's a hundred year anniversary it's a great thing to recognize that we've come a hundred years with diabetes care because of the discovery with insulin and that seminar that day will have speakers from around the world, including myself, that will speak on every aspect of diabetes care and especially around medication therapies and the technologies that our patients can use to improve their care both now and what's coming down the road in the next decade so certainly i'll be really eagerly listening to all the speakers. Uh, You probably know that uh, Doug Melton is going to be speaking about stem cells, uh, how they can play a role, a really important role in getting native insulin production back to patients with diabetes. And I'm sure he's going to outline uh, the progress that has been made with stem cells and also the challenges that still remain, you know, with how to get a beta cell in the body to produce insulin, but then still not be, for example, attacked by your autoimmune system, which caused the problem in the first place. So that, that's going to be a really fascinating talk by a world leader in that space. Dr. Annie Peters will be speaking about continuous glucose monitors, You know some of the ones that are out there now, but also what's coming down the line. Um, and again, some fascinating technology uh, is going to be highlighted. And I, as you mentioned myself, I'm going to be speaking about the robots, but also I'm going to be looking at artificial intelligence. So we have all these technologies now harvesting data from patients, It's just data, really. So can we get knowledge from that data? Can we look for unique insights using machine learning algorithms to find out, for example, when you're going to get a low blood sugar? Some of the the early data now tells us that um, you can predict a low blood sugar maybe five, six hours before you even have it. And I mean, that's remarkable because currently in clinical practice, someone can say, you know, I feel a bit low, I check their blood sugar and it's low and they fix it. If they're really on top of their diabetes, they can see the arrows trending down for example in continuous monitors and they can kind of prevent it in the next half an hour by taking sugar dextro sweets and so on before the event happens but what we're talking about now is that you could get a, a digital nudge you know a text message to your phone or a vibration on your smartwatch to say just to let you know this afternoon you're going to go low at 4 p.m unless you do x y and z and it knows that because it's mined your data for the last six months and then other people's data that are very similar to you and from those trends it can say this person will go low in the next five six hours based on these patterns and i mean that's just remarkable the insights we're going to get and it could prevent that person getting a hypo in four or five hours and then they can go on and live a a more full and higher quality life because they won't have to be worrying about these sentinel events like hypoglycemia or indeed hyperglycemia
0: absolutely incredible yeah i wish we could have more time but we are out of time. So, Professor O'Keefe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor O'Keefe. If you'd like to register for Insulin 2021, the next 100 years of discoveries, be sure to visit endocrine.org slash insulin100. That's endocrine.org insulin100. It's on November 9th, and it's free. Now, if you have a topic in mind that you want to hear on the podcast, let me know by emailing me at podcast at endocrine.org. And as always, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.